Hey, how are we doing tonight? Grab your Bibles, turn to uh, 1 Kings 19. We are going to be in 1 Kings 19 tonight. If you need a Bible, there's ushers coming up and down the rows. Uh, grab a Bible, 1 Kings 19. It's, it's not as long as last week, but we're going to be going through maybe 28, 29 verses tonight. So if you had a copy of God's Word in front of you, it would be helpful. One of the things that I love about this chapter is the points come right from the text. This is one of those chapters that I have really been excited ever since we started the study of Elijah to preach to you guys. Now, we are in a study of Elijah. It's been going on, I think, four weeks. And I'm going to do a little bit of review. If you've been here for the four weeks, just to catch up to speed. If you're visiting or have missed a couple of the weeks, what's been going on in Israel is this. Israel has fallen into idolatry, and they're like five kings deep, each king getting um, more and more wicked, leading the people further astray. They are worshiping a, a, a myriad of gods, different Baals. One of the main gods that they're worshiping is um, called Baal. He is the rain god or the god of the storm. So God raises up Elijah. He says, go talk to Ahab, the current king, and his um, demon priestess wife Jezebel. They're the worst. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. And he says, go talk to them and tell them that it's not going to rain until I say so. And so there's a drought in the land. And during that drought, um, Elijah is being hunted. The people are suffering because of the conditions of the drought. If you lived at the time of Elijah back in the Old Testament, water's everything. And they didn't have water for their livestock. They didn't have enough water for their crops. They didn't have enough water for themselves. So the nation of Israel is suffering. And then last week in uh, 1 Kings 18, Elijah comes back. He finds King Ahab and he says, okay, we got to decide who's following the real God. And he looks at the people of the nation of Israel and he says, hey, quit limping around. It's time for you to make a choice on which God you're going to follow. If you're going to follow the Lord God, then great. If you're going to follow Baal, then serve him. But at least get off the fence. So we looked at this last week. The people are quiet. Uh, Elijah says, we're going to go up to the top of Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a showdown on this thing. And there's going to be two altars built. Let the uh, prophets of Baal go first. They can build their altar. They can cry out to their God. They do that all day. There's no response. And then Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord on top of Mount Carmel. He prays a simple, humble prayer. And we're told that God sends fire down from heaven. It consumes the altar. It consumes the sacrifice. And following that, well, I'll just pick it up. We read this in verse 39 of, 18, or of chapter 18. The people repent. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then it says, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Uh, this is a spectacular moment from the Old Testament. God shows up in an incredibly awesome way, fire from heaven. Would have been cool to see that, wouldn't it? Just raining down fire from heaven, and then the prophets of Baal are defeated. This is a high point. Elijah, his faith has been validated. He's defeated the prophets of Baal. God has shown up. The people have repented. He is central in solving the biggest crisis of the day, which is the drought, because immediately after the prophets are killed, all of a sudden, God brings a downpour of rain. If there was ever a time where Elijah should have been on the top of the world, it's at the end of 1 Kings 18. Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings 19. Ahab, so that's the king, tells his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She tells Elijah, in 24 hours, you're going to be dead, or the gods can strike me dead. Verse 3, then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Okay, so we're five verses into 19. How's our boy Elijah doing? Little turn of events there. Like, like how do you get from the mountain? By the way, when did that happen? The day before. God's rained down fire from heaven. You've defeated the prophets of Baal. And less than 24 hours later, you've ran to the wilderness of Beersheba. You're laying under a broom tree, whatever that is. I don't think it's a tree with brooms, but I'm not sure. I think it's a bra, uh, kind of a bush or a, a brushy tree. And he's saying, let me die. I don't think our boy Elijah's in great shape, do you? Now, now I'm reading in the text, he appears maybe a little bit in despair, maybe a little depressed. Are you picking up on that? As he's laying under the tree waiting to die in the middle of the wilderness, I don't see any mention of a toothbrush or a comb. I don't think he's doing really well physically. He, he has gone to absolute rock bottom less than a day after in a mountaintop experience somewhat unrivaled throughout the whole Old Testament. How in the world does that happen? I would ask for a show of hands. Anybody here ever struggle with despair, depression? You ever been there? Life's very cyclical. Sometimes we go from highs to lows very, very quickly. Now, one of the main verses in our study, we keep looking at this verse in James, James 5. It says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So, so that means if Elijah is like us, then, well, maybe you couldn't relate to him really well last week when he was calling fire down from heaven, but I got a feeling a lot of people are going to be able to relate to him this week while he's going through a season of despair and depression. And if this can happen to Elijah, because our nature is the same, then we run the same risk. And here's the wonderful thing about this chapter, 1 Kings 19. I actually believe that God shows up bigger and better in chapter 19. And we're going to learn more about God and his love and his care and his grace for us in chapter eight, or 19 than we ever saw on display on top of the mountain in chapter 18. So to get there, we're just going to be very, very practical. We're going to look at just very four quick steps. What's the path to despair and what's the path to recovery? The big idea this morning is simply this. The same God we see on the mountain walks with us in the valley. Let me do this before we jump into the points. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for um, this text and uh, what you reveal about us, what you reveal about your goodness, your grace, the way that you love us. And Father, I would pray for those who, who are struggling here. I pray for those as 
life throws different seasons at us, and there are some that I'm sure can relate very, very closely to this message. I pray that you would uh, give an encouraging word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's the first thing as we break down the text. I'm going to be in those first five verses that I read to you. What's the first thing that we see that led Elijah so quickly from jubilation to depression or to despair? And the first thing that I want to point out to you, exhaustion. Exhaustion. Physically exhausted. So, so let's just review some of the things that have been going on just in the last chapter or so in the life of Elijah. First, he's up in uh, a place called Zarephath in chapter 18. And God calls him and says, I want you to go to Mount Carmel. Now, to give you a little bit of an idea, and since some of us are getting very good at um, Israeli geography, Sidon is where current-day Lebanon is. Zarephath would have been a coastal city just below Sidon, somewhere near what is currently the Israeli-Lebanese border. So he leaves from Zarephath. He's got to make his way to Mount Carmel. That's about a 50-mile journey. As he goes to Mount Carmel, and he's going to meet Ahab there, he's got to climb Mount Carmel. It's very rugged terrain. When he gets to the top of Mount Carmel, as he's battling with the prophets of Baal, it says that he rebuilds the altar of the Lord. As soon as God shows up and burns the altar down with fire, it says that he commanded the people to go and chase the prophets of Baal into the Kishon Valley. And by the way, it's interesting. If you read the text, it's very, very clear. It says, and it says, and they seized him. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So Elijah has just slaughtered 450 men. So 50 miles, climb the mountain, down the mountain, kill 450 men. Oh, how did he kill them? Well, that's in the first verse of chapter 19 with a sword. I just got to believe that takes some level of exertion, wouldn't you think? So he's battled 450 prophets down in the Kishon Valley. Then he goes from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, where Jezebel and Ahab have a palace. The run from Mount Carmel or the Kishon Valley to Jezreel is another 17 miles. Not a complete marathon, but not a small distance by any means. And then when he gets there the next morning, Jezebel says, I'm going to hunt you down in the next 24 hours. So he flees to the wilderness of Bathsheba. That's 95 miles from Jezreel. You guys doing math here? The guy's exhausted. And I'm just talking about physically the exertion that he experienced and the things that he did. I want you to think about it from an emotional standpoint as well. He, he's been hunted for three and a half years. He's been on the run. He shows up to the king. He utters his challenge. It's him against 450. You got to believe that that emotional exertion the dude spent, wouldn't you think? And, and I don't mean that wrong. There was a battle there. If you look at our soldiers when they come back from war, often they are exhausted. Often they have a season of letdown when they get back home because they are running at such a high level of intensity. That, that combat mode that it's really, really hard to return to normal life. I got to believe for Elijah, after what he's just experienced, He's not just physically exhausted, but he's emotionally exhausted as well. 
Elijah's gone to Jezreel. One of the reasons that he is there is to confront Ahab and his wife Jezebel. I got to believe that some of the things that he's struggling with here is just the exhaustion, physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion that has led him to despair, that has led him to depression. Some of you remember this passage. Cal taught on it back in June or July, early in the summer. And one of the things that he said was this. He said, the lies of the enemy are loudest when we are exhausted. Do you believe that that's true? And so in this moment, the guy who was so bold in chapter 18, he hears the threat from Jezebel. And when you would think after everything that he'd just experienced, that wouldn't rile him up. He's gone. He's fleeing for his life. He's in the wilderness. Second thing I see in the text is unmet expectations. It says this in 1 Kings 18.46. It says the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He ran to Jezreel. Why did he go there? Well, he just had victory at Mount Carmel. The people had acknowledged God as the true God. They had killed the false prophets. Ahab and Jezebel were on the run. The people were finally on Elijah's side, and the drought was over. Like, like, this was his moment in the sun. Victory was there. I got to believe he either expected Ahab and Jezebel, in, in light of everything that had happened on Mount Carmel, he had to believe that they would change their ways, that they also would repent and see who the true God was. Or if not, maybe the people would rebel, revolt, and they would be removed from power. But that's not what happens. If that was his expectation, those expectations go unmet. What happens next is he's on the run again. Three and a half years hiding from Ahab and Jezebel, one day of glory, and he's right back on the run. He's a fugitive. Ahab and Jezebel, they remain on the throne. Their hearts are not softened. As a matter of fact, Jezebel seemed hardened in her resolve to kill the prophets. Sometimes when we go through unmet expectations, it can lead to despair, it can lead to depression. When we're exhausted, when we're hit with unmet expectations. You know, it was interesting this last week, we were here on Sunday, I just preached two sermons last weekend, Connor was here, and then at the 10 o'clock, I was feeling really, really good. We were getting away for a couple days to Bitely. Last weekend, looking forward to it in great mental spirit. We listened to the Bears game on the way. They lost. That's not really an unmet expectation at this point. Just don't like it. Went out hunting. Didn't shoot anything again. I'm teasing about those two. Then the the hard ones came. So we, we preached in the morning, and as we were sitting at home, I got a phone call, and some people started texting me, and People that used to go to our church, all of a sudden a marriage is broken and divorce is there. And man, just a gut punch. Just a gut punch. And there's that moment, even on a Sunday evening, after as good as last weekend was, that I'm sitting there going, why do I do this? So so many people, we saw a, a, a spark of growth. We saw fruit in their lives. And now what we're seeing over time, many of them wander away. Matthew 13 talks about this. It's the cares of the world. It's the deceitfulness of riches. It's many different things, trials and persecutions. But all of a sudden, you're hit with the reality that another one that was in our fold 
just making choices that you go, why? And all of a sudden, you're hit with that wave. Why am I doing this? How long is this going to last? Is it making any difference? You hear Elijah call out, my life's no better than my father's. He's saying, my life's wasted. What's the point? Things never change. Let me just tell you, the, the enemy likes to attack right when we're coming down from the mountain. Have you ever noticed that? Almost every time we do baptisms at this building or in Grand Haven, very often when I'm closing that service, if I'm the guy that is doing the baptisms, I'm like, pray for these people. For many of these people, this was a big step of faith. This is a big moment in their life. They don't like public speaking. They just publicly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And, and guess what? I know what comes next. Often a lot of trial. The enemy does not let us experience victory without some sort of retaliation. So, Elijah, we see exhaustion. We see that his expectations were unmet. Here's a third thing that I see. He abandons godly disciplines. Look at verse 3 of 1 Kings 19. It says, Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So one of the things um, I taught last week, two of us taught, Connor taught here at the 5 and the 10. I was at the 9 and the 11. Both services are online if you want to hear. But I made the point that Elijah lived a pretty simple life as a prophet. His life wasn't all that complicated. He went where God told him to go. He did what God told him to do. He said what God told him to say. That's a pretty uncomplicated life if those are your priorities. There's a lot to be said for a simple life. But this is the first time, verse 3 is the first time we've seen anywhere in the story of Elijah where he goes somewhere that God didn't tell him to go. God said, go to Mount Carmel, seek out Ahab. He did it. Go to Zarephath. He did it. Guess what? We don't see that in chapter 19. He just flees on his own. He's breaking the very disciplines that had carried him through some of his most difficult days and the disciplines where he was seeing God show up. Fear has gripped his heart and his spiritual disciplines are suddenly in the wind. Certainly someone who has just seen God on the mountain like Elijah had wouldn't become fearful so quickly, but he quickly abandons spiritual disciplines. And here's the fourth thing I see. It's at the end of verse 3. It says this, he left his servant there. God didn't tell him to do that. God didn't tell him to leave his servant. Most commentators say, in leaving his servant, here's what he was in essence saying, hey, I quit. He wasn't thinking of his servant's safety, that if Jezebel was after him, he wanted to leave him in a safe place. He wanted to distance himself from him so that guy wouldn't be in danger. He says what Elijah was saying was, I'm done being a prophet. I don't need a servant anymore because I'm not going to be a prophet of the Lord anymore. You stay here. So you see that he isolated. And then he goes a day's journey into the wilderness and sits under the broom tree. Hey, God, I quit. I'm done. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this text, he said, it's interesting, Elijah is literally retreating at this point from a defeated enemy. The prophets of Baal slaughtered and defeated the day before. And in the moment after their defeat, he's running in fear from a defeated enemy. Proverbs 18.1, as we talk about isolation, it says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all 
sound judgment. When we're isolated, we begin to think that the despair or the sorrows that we're feeling, that it's unique, that nobody else goes through these, that we are alone, that we're abandoned. Things never get better in isolation. He says this, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. He's exhausted. He's disappointed. He's disillusioned. He's fearful. He's on the run. It'd be bad enough if he was on the run from Jezebel, but he's on the run from God. He's alone. Again, how's our boy doing? Not great. And the funny thing is, as you read this, just this is all just five verses. It's very easy for us in the text to identify the steps that led him to that place. But here's the truth. When we're in that spiral, it's way harder for us to see. Sometimes we don't recognize that we're exhausted, that we've been running too hard, too fast for too long. He's followed a path. There's been steps to his depression. He's exhausted. There are unmet expectations. He abandons godly disciplines, and he isolates. There's some good news in this. You found it yet? Here's the good news. If this can happen to Elijah, then sometimes I don't feel bad when I go through it, right? Like, like we're all messed up to some extent. We're all susceptible to this, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're messed up. Like, this can happen very quickly to anybody in the room. And the good news in this is if it happened to Elijah, well, good news. Let's see what happens next. Because, again, I think what you're going to see next in the text is God show up in a way that is actually more spectacular than what we saw last week when he rained fire from heaven. Here's the path to recovery. It starts in verse 5. We already read, and Elijah laid down and slept under a broom tree. Look what happens next. And behold, and it's like, you're not going to believe this. And behold, it's like, this is amazing. An angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked in, there's that phrase again, behold, this is amazing. There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. Now, that might not seem like a real significant verse to you, but, but let me break down what's going on. Elijah, God's prophet, has ran into the wilderness. He's laying under a broom tree and an angel. We're told in verse 6, an angel, but then in verse 7, it describes it in more detail. It's an angel of the Lord. And just a little theology here. In the Old Testament, when you see that phrase, an angel of the Lord, it's often not referring to an angelic being. It's referring to what theologians would call a theopony. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. So, so I believe what happens to Elijah here, another example of a, theop a theophany would be in Daniel, the third chapter. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They go into a fiery furnace, and when the king looks in to see how they're doing, what does the king see? A fourth person. We sing a song, there's another in the fire. Sing that often here at church. That was a theophany. And I believe that we're seeing the same thing here. Who comes to him in the wilderness? Pre-incarnate Jesus. It's God himself. And, and, and what is the first thing that God does? Don't miss this. He touches them. It, it's personal. 
Hey, Elijah, I'm here. You, you thought you were alone. You thought you were in the middle of nowhere. You were waiting to die. I'm not going to leave you here alone. And he touches them. It's, it's personal. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand will hold me. Jesus Christ appearing to Elijah in the wilderness and saying, I'm not letting go of you. You're not alone. I'm here with you. And then the next verse is just spectacular. Look what he says in verse 6. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Who baked that? <laughs> Wasn't him. He was sleeping. There's only one other person there. Jesus is baking for Elijah? Don't miss that. Look what it says. It says, and at his head was a cake baked on hot stones. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the word cake, in the Hebrew, here's what it means. It's a disc or a cake of bread. A disc cake. That's a donut. That's what that is. It's very, very clear in the text. Probably vanilla frosting with sprinkles. That's my guess. Can't prove it. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, you guys wonder when you get to church every week, why do they do the donut thing? Biblical, right there. <laughs> That's where we start. So God touches him. Jesus is there. He bakes him a cake or a donut. The path to recovery starts with physical care. It's on display here. Too often, I think when I was younger, earlier even when I was pastoring, I think one of the things that we, we need to remind ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, be it as a pastor, be it as a counselor, be it as a small group leader, be it as a friend, not all depression, not all despair is rooted in spiritual issues. Not all of it. Sometimes it can be just from exhaustion. It can be physical. And we don't want to be so quick to say, as soon as somebody says, man, I'm exhausted, I'm depressed, going, well, can you memorize this verse? How's your prayer life? That sounds like a lack of faith. I think you need to recall all of God's promises to you. Make a list. And what we do is we respond with spiritual instruction. And I just find it easy that, or, or interesting that in this text, that's not where Jesus starts. Have a donut. Take a nap. You're not alone. Ministering to Elijah, a depressed and despondent prophet, to his physical needs first, to his relational needs. Depression sometimes follows physical fatigue. It's interesting. An another Old Testament passage, I don't have the time to turn there, but you guys know the story of Job, right? So Job, let's think of what he went through. He's buried seven of his kids. There's some grief there. Would you agree? He's lost everything he owns. Physically, he's a mess. He's covered from head to toe with boils. And his friends show up, and you know what they do? Well, if all of this happens to you, then it's got to be sin. Immediately assuming that there's something wrong. Job 
Here's what I want you to see. God ministers to Elijah in the midst of his despair and depression. He ministers to him in this text physically, emotionally, and spiritually. God wants you wholly whole. And here's the truth. Sometimes the physical can affect the emotional, which then affects the spiritual. So the first thing we see on the path to Elijah's recovery Elijah receives physical care. Here's the second thing. Look at it in verse 7. It says, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and drank. And he, That's twice, by the way. He's eaten a second donut. I do that sometimes on Sundays, going back and forth to services. I grab here one here at Grand Haven. It's okay, biblically indoors. <laughs> and he rose and he ate and drank again. And went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So it's interesting. Here's what it says in the text. The angel of the Lord, Jesus says to him, I believe, it says, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Okay, who said anything about a journey? He was just planning on laying under the tree until God took his life. So, So now the angel, I believe, has said, hey, There's more to do. There's a journey ahead of you. And by the way, you now got to get from the wilderness of Beersheba all the way to Mount Horeb. That's 200 miles. It's going to take work. It's going to take some effort. And after meeting his physical needs and giving him physical care, the next thing that we do is we see Elijah told, you got to pursue the Lord again. You got to get to Mount Horeb. Got to meet with you there. going to take work. Too often, I think, when we find ourselves depressed, we're interested in the really quick cure, if we're honest, aren't we? Take the medicine, take the pill, go on vacation, change the scenery, find a new relationship. We're, We're looking for quick cures. He says, hey, 200 miles, get back to God. And my fear is, just like Christians can run too quickly to the spiritual, Way too often doctors or psychologists or counselors never even consider the spiritual. Where the physical can affect the emotional, which affects the spiritual, the spiritual can also affect the emotional, which affects the physical. It's interesting, in the story of Cain and Abel, all the way back to Genesis 4, it says this, You'll remember Cain and Abel gave sacrifices. They brought him before God's. Abel's was not or was accepted. Cain's was not. And in response to that, it says, For Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So Cain is angry and he's depressed. His countenance has fallen. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? Why are you depressed? Why are you in despair? And God answers him. This is the first counseling case in Scripture. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In the case of Cain, the problem had a spiritual core. Elijah, it wasn't just physical exhaustion. He had abandoned his spiritual disciplines, and where God meets him physically with physical care, he immediately changes the subject and goes, you got to get back to pursuing the Lord. It's interesting, Horeb is another name 
Mount Horeb is another name for a mountain you're more familiar with, Mount Sinai. Do you remember that from the Exodus story? God takes the people, they camp under Mount Sinai. He goes up on Mount Sinai. He meets with the Lord. He receives the Ten Commandments. He goes up on Mount Sinai and yells, Lord, show me your glory. And God passes before him as he hides in the cleft of a rock. And he comes down the mountain and his face is on fire from seeing the Lord God to the point that it scares the nation of Israel. Like God's shown up big time on Mount Sinai before. And the angel goes, go back to where you've seen God work before. Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God, it's an old book, but it's a good one. He says, watch to see where God is working and join him. Hey, hey, if if you find yourself in a position where you're in despair and you feel far from the Lord, go back and do the things that you did when you were first saved and see if that excitement won't return. Go back and pursue the Lord like you did when you were first saved. We tell married couples often, if you're, oh, I'm not in love anymore, hey, why don't you do the things that love does and you'll feel the things that love feels? Like, have you taken your spouse out on a date? Do you hold her hand? Like, these are all the things that you did when you were in love. You stopped doing that and then you're shocked that you don't feel this way? And the idea is, we're going to take you all the way back to Mount Sinai. It's going to take work. It's not going to be easy. It's not the quick fix. Verse 9, then he came to a cave. This is now on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, and he lodged in it. Commentators speculate that Elijah most likely went back to the very cave or cleft in the rock where Moses saw God. He wants to see God move. He goes where he's moved before And what happens next in this text, at the end of verse 9 to 10, it's amazing. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So the amazing thing about this is God asked him a question. He's like, Elijah, why are you here? Like, like, we understand that when God asks us a question, he's not looking for information. Like, he knows the answer. He's trying to get Elijah to realize what's going on. And what Elijah spews out is some very bad thinking. He blame shifts. God, I'm disgusted with everyone else. I'm jealous for your name. They're not treating you right. Uh, His words are laced with self-importance and pride. I'm the only good guy left. I'm it. Like, Like Elijah, weren't you like just a few days ago laying under a bush waiting to die? He pursues the Lord. Here's the third thing. I think it's important in the text. We need to understand that we don't understand God's plan. Verse 11. God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. See, see, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, there was fire, there was earthquake, there was wind. It terrified the people down below. 
And, and Elijah has gone right back there expecting to see the very same things, but God doesn't speak to him the way that he spoke to Moses. He speaks to him in an entirely different way. It's in a low whisper. Elijah expected fire. The low whisper was unexpected. I, again, I won't take the time. I'll throw, I, I think these verses are on the screen. If not, I'll just read. You'll, why don't you just listen? John 11, Lazarus has died. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are in despair. Martha comes to Jesus, said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus' response to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He preaches truth to her. He gives her a lecture. Mary, the sister, comes out and says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you remember that? Same thing the sister said, right? So she's going to get the same lecture? Absolutely not. What we read next, Jesus wept. So Martha gets the lecture, Mary gets tears. Do you, do you understand that God isn't going to respond to us all the very same way? He meets us all personally in the way that we need to hear him. Different hearts and different needs need different things from the riches of God's grace. Do we trust that we know that God knows what he's doing? Do we believe that God's working even when we might not understand his methods or his reasons? We don't get to choose how God reveals himself to us. Again, Henry Blackaby, we don't choose what we will do for God. He invites us to join him and, he and where he wants to involve us. God will not be tamed. Look at verse 13. It says this, And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it. Does that sound like we read that before? Because he's saying the exact same thing. God has shown up but he hasn't had his heart moved. He hasn't changed his attitude. The implication is that Elijah does not particularly wish to understand what God is saying through these events. He's still self-absorbed, still frustrated. God's not dealing with his circumstances and with people the way that Elijah would like. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. Okay. In a whisper, God tells his servant Elijah to go anoint a pagan king. That could not have made sense to Elijah. This is an enemy of Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, Hazael and his son, Ben-Hadib, will be used to bring judgment against Israel. They will be a mechanism of judgment. They will fight against Israel. Then it says in verse 16, and then anoint Jehu, the son of Nishmi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Jehu will become king over Israel. He does some good things, some bad things, but he's the guy that's going to eventually bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. And then he says, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of that guy, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So God says, go anoint a pagan king, go anoint the next king of Israel, and by the way, I'm going to give you help. Why don't you go 
anoint your replacement. He had to be shaking his head. God didn't show up in the wind. He didn't show up in the earthquake. He didn't show up in the fire. And now he's got him doing things that he never expected God to ask him to do. And I think sometimes we need to understand that God is working and sometimes we don't understand everything that God is doing. Understand we don't understand God's plan. And then look at the fourth thing. Accept your role and limitations. He says, go, anoint the king. Elijah twice has said, and I, even I alone, am left. God answers, he says, it's interesting to look at verse 18. He says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah's believing a lie. He says, it's I alone. He says, no, there's 7,000. Haven't bent the knee. Elijah believes that he's been very jealous for the Lord God. He says, I can take care of myself. I've got a plan. I'm anointing kings. I'm anointing pagan kings. I'm anointing the next king of Israel. I'm choosing my next prophet. God's got a layered plan beyond what we can imagine. Just look at verse 17. The one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave the 7,000 in Israel. God's got a layered plan, a layered defense. For years, I was a soccer coach. I used to tell my kids in soccer, soccer isn't won by the team that scores the most goals. It's won by the team that gives up the least. I was a defensive coach, so I always, my emphasis was always on defense. But one of the things that you do if you're a, a, a soccer coach, the worst thing that you want to see is the other team isolate one of your defenders one-on-one. The last thing you want to see is a one-on-one breakaway against your goalie. You don't want to see the other team isolate one of your defenders out on the wing so it's just that defender. So, so what you do is you create a layered approach. If one of your defenders is out on the wing guarding a guy, you want one of the guys from the middle kind of sliding over so that if he gets beat, the next guy's there. And then if that guy gets beat, maybe the far wing comes over and he's there. And if that guy gets beat, then you've got the goalie. It's a layered defense. And what God is saying to Elijah is, he says, understand your role and your limitations. This all isn't on your shoulders. You carry that attitude around, you're going to be overwhelmed and depressed really, really quick. But God says, listen, the guy who gets by Aziel, my, my person that I've chosen to bring judgment on Israel, Jehu will take care of, and who Jehu doesn't take care of, Elijah will take care of. I am three people down the line farther than you imagined. There's a layer approach to my sovereignty. So what do we do with all of this? We see the path to depression. We see the path to recovery. It begins with physical care. Elijah, once again, is told to pursue the Lord. God doesn't appear as Elijah would have thought. We understand that we don't understand all of God's plan, and we need to accept our role and limitations. So how do we make this practical? Let me say this as we close. If you find yourself struggling with depression, rather than wallow in despair, look for its causes. Is, is, it, is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Has one bled into the other, which has bled into the other? Where can I start? What are the simple things that I can do? And it might be you really need a good night of rest. 
And it might be that you need to quit isolating. And it might be that you need to pray, repent, and return to the Lord. I love the fact that in this chapter, God wholly heals Elijah. Maybe you find yourself in a season of frustration. God isn't doing the things that you expected him to do. Maybe you need to remind yourself. Maybe as a church, we need to get back to the faith definition. Faith is believing the word of God and acting on it no matter how I feel. Because God promises a good result. And you might have wanted him to show up with an earthquake and wind and fire. Maybe it's just a small whisper. Maybe we just need to simplify our lives again and get back to just doing what God's told us to do, saying what he's told us to say, and going where he's told us to go. Let me just ask this before we pray. What's the loudest voice in your life? That voice needs to be God, even if he's speaking in a small whisper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this chapter. We've seen you show up in glory. And Father, now we see you personally show up to meet Elijah in his darkest season. You are God on the mountain. You are God in the valley. Father, I pray for those um, in that dark season who are struggling, who feel alone, maybe feel abandoned. Father, I pray that you would be that soft hand on the shoulder. You're there. There's nowhere that you can go. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. Father, I pray that as a as a church, as pastors, we take the time to listen. Understand that uh, people hurt in many different ways, that no two people are the same. Father, teach us to search for wisdom. Teach us to have a heart and an approach like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.